Welcome to this special Floating in Darkness episode of the Orbital Perspective podcast. In this episode, we'll be making a deep dive into one of the key messages contained in my new book, Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution. The book describes how my experience as a combat fighter pilot and as an astronaut has illuminated a path towards understanding the meaning of life and our place in the universe. I know that's a pretty tall order, but uh, <laughs> I'll leave it up to you guys to figure out if uh, I made a dent in that mystery. But this episode was originally aired live as part of my five-part Floating in Darkness live stream event series. If you haven't registered for this free series, you can do so at floatingindarkness.com. And as a special gift for tuning into this episode, if you use the coupon code FUTURE on the pre-order tab of floatingindarkness.com, you will get 25% off the retail price of the hardback book and a free ebook download coupon. Thank you so much for being aboard for this journey of adventure. And now, it's on to the show. Pure white light streams out from behind Earth. I am engulfed in colorless radiant light that seems to be emanating out of cold emptiness and traveling through cold nothingness. The light streams over and around me and a hint of peaceful serenity awakens inside me. Beyond my view of the sparkling ISS, a rocky coastline on an unrecognized continent drifts into view. Sunlight bathing newly awakened snow-capped mountains into the glory of a new day. I imagine there are people down there somewhere, just starting their day, who are also witnesses to this exquisite beauty from a different but no less compelling perspective. I wish we could share notes. The complex immensity of the ISS against the backdrop of our indescribably beautiful Earth 240 miles below thrust me into a singularity. The entire universe peels away the blanket of danger, the thoughts of upcoming tasks, the feelings of fatigue, the excitement of being in space are all displaced by a singular vision of beauty. The truth that is blatantly apparent from this vantage point is that every living thing on the planet and the planet itself are inexplicably interconnected and interdependent. What's obvious from this vantage point of physical detachment from Earth is that we are not from Earth. We are of Earth. All of us. Every living creature. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Floating in Darkness live stream event. You know, we cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from which change can begin. Those are the words of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and I don't think they've ever been more true than they are today. Uh, and the acceptance of of reality is that we are not from the earth; we are of the earth, like you like you heard in the in, in the video. And before I get going, I want to say that this is going to be uh, the most interactive uh, episode that we've had. Uh, the success of this episode is completely well, not completely. It's it's also dependent on all of you out there um, to be a part of this conversation. We want this to be a conversation, so jump in, jump in uh, with your comments and your questions and and your points and your opinions and your observations and, and everything else. And uh, we'll we'll have this be a really really interactive uh, episode. But to kind of set the stage for this episode, every day people have heated emotional arguments. 
Uh, and a lot of times it's simply because each is coming from a different perspective. And I think this, this disconnect has become so severe that when facts don't agree with our perceived reality, we change the facts rather than change our opinion. And, you know, we've all heard of things like alternative facts. Those are simply tools that are used to keep an inaccurate perceived reality intact. You know, sometimes the common ground that is missing is a common starting condition. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this episode talking about starting conditions and, and what that means. And when we dolly zoom out to a starting condition that the orbital perspective provides, people are naturally drawn together into a more aligned vantage point. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about how zooming out or dolly zooming out uh, to a perspective that shows any situation, any problem, any challenge from the widest possible geographic uh, area and over the longest time frame. Uh, when we do that, things, things will become clearer and, and the solutions uh, will be more lasting and deeper and, and more effective. And so I want to start out this episode uh, by playing a video. And the, and the intention of this video is to challenge your perception of reality. It's really important to constantly assess the reality of any situation. Um, the reason for that is because we cannot solve a problem if we are part of that problem. And as the video is playing, I, again, I, I remind everybody, jump in with your comments, your, your questions, and, and be a part of this, of this conversation. Just like it's done every day for the last four months, the beeping alarm of my Omega Speedmaster watch wakes me from sleep. The first thing I do is open my laptop computer and check the schedule. Today, I see a vertical red line that marches from left to right, passing over all of my daily tasks. As I finish tasks, I will mark them completed on this program, and the ground will be able to keep up with my progress. My job today as it is every day, is to keep up with the red line. My first task is to reconfigure a toolbox that arrived a couple of weeks ago on an unmanned cargo spacecraft. Basically, I need to consolidate two toolboxes into one. That may sound simple, but in zero-g, with tools floating all over the place, it can be a nightmare. I scan through the procedure and note that it's long, complex, and highly choreographed. This procedure, like all procedures on the ISS, assume a certain starting condition. Starting conditions assume that the equipment I'm to work on is in a certain configuration, that switches are set a certain way, cables are routed a certain way, etc. Many times, these conditions do not accurately reflect the actual situation and configuration on board the ISS. Today is no exception. The problem is that few of the tools are in the starting place assumed by the procedure writers. It doesn't take me long to realize that the highly detailed procedures cannot be executed as written because they assume the wrong starting conditions. To accomplish the task, I will have to request a change in the procedure. I will have to be particularly diplomatic when I bring up this observation. In the past, when I pointed out discrepancies and offered an alternative approach to ensure that I can achieve the desired objectives, I, at times, met stiff resistance. So, after I dress, brush my teeth, and get a bite to eat, I call the on-duty Capcom on our onboard phone so that we can talk privately. On the call, I notice that the Capcom is getting irritated. I ask him why. Someone worked a long time to come up with these detailed procedures, and now you're throwing them out the window, he says. In the calmest and the most diplomatic way I can muster, I try to explain that although a great deal of work went into the procedures, that doesn't change the fact that because they assume an incorrect starting condition, they cannot possibly be used to accomplish the task. I offer an alternative approach. 
He tells me that they will consider my request. About an hour later, I receive word over the main ISS radio frequency. In a stern and somewhat disgusted tone, the Capcom transmits, We discussed your toolbox issue, and we are going to allow you to do it your way. The response confuses me. The hostility is obvious, and I try to figure out where it's coming from. To me, it indicates that despite my best efforts, I didn't effectively communicate the reality of the situation. The ground controllers and the Capcom thought that one reality existed. But I knew that what I could see with my own eyes differed greatly from the ground's perceived reality. I couldn't understand why they refused to change their perspective in light of the new facts I presented. I remember a quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu. We cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from which change can begin. In this toolbox situation, I believe that Capcom became combative because, for whatever reason, he couldn't bring himself to believe that the reality spelled out in the procedure was inaccurate. The fact that someone worked hard to produce the procedure clouded his judgment and created a bias in his perception of reality. There are countless examples of this happening in everyday life. Every day, people have heated emotional arguments simply because each has a different perspective. It has become so severe that when facts don't agree with our perceived reality, we change the facts rather than change our opinion. Alternative facts are simply tools used to keep an inaccurate perceived reality intact. As I finish reconfiguring and consolidating the toolboxes, I realize that sometimes the common ground that is missing is a common starting condition. When we dolly zoom to the starting condition that the orbital perspective provides, people naturally are drawn together into a more aligned vantage point. In other words, if we zoom out to the point where we consider the implications of our decisions and opinions over the widest feasible geographic area and over the longest feasible time frame, things become clearer and we can make better decisions. That thought reminds me of the first movie in the Matrix trilogy. In one scene, Morpheus says to Neo, the Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is hampering our progress. But when you're inside and you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people that we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still part of that system and are still hampering our progress. You have to understand that most of these people are not ready to be unplugged and many of them are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? In actuality, Morpheus didn't really use the words hampering our progress. He said our enemy, which to me is the same thing. In the toolbox situation, the Capcom couldn't understand the problem because he was part of the problem. He was part of the false reality and he couldn't rise above it. In a sense, in 1961, and then again, more profoundly in 1968, humanity had an out-of-body experience that enabled us to rise above our problems. As representatives of humanity, Yuri Gagarin, and then the crew of Apollo 8, left the physical aggregate body of Earth and looked back upon ourselves. They were unplugged from the matrix or unchained from the cave, which enabled them to dolly zoom to see what we have always been. One single human family with a common origin traveling together toward a shared future, for better or for worse. But the mere fact that those experiences were made possible by the ingenuity and cooperative nature of humanity should give us hope that we can build a shared future that we would all want to be a part of. A future where all people can live in harmony with one another and with the planet. Where all people can live in peace and dignity. And where the needs of all will be met. A future where everybody can live in peace and dignity, dignity with each other. Uh, and the planet, and where the needs of all will be met. That's a pretty tall order. <laughs> uh, but, again, I think because of the uh, ingenuity of the human spirit, we have proven that we can do that. And I think 
part of the reason why we haven't done it yet is because of the differences of our perceived reality. Um, all, all, pers all perspectives are subjective. Um, they all uh, are filtered in some way or another. And thanks, Michael, for your comments. Let's, uh, let's pop one up here right, right, right quick. Uh, for Michael and our perceptions are really reality tunnels, as Timothy Leary called it, and they come from our personal and social filters. So that is that is definitely true. But this is actually a good thing because multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation. Two perspectives give us stereoscopic vision, and the more perspectives that we bring towards tackling a challenge or a problem, the deeper we'll see that challenge or problem, the, the better the solutions will be, with an exception, with a caveat. And that caveat is those differences in perspectives have to be based on accurate data. If those, if those perspectives are built on inaccurate information, uh, then that builds a distorted view of reality, which is counterproductive uh, to progress. Um, you know, as I said in, in, in the end of that last video, uh, the very ingenuity and the cooperative nature of humanity should give us hope that we can build uh, this future. And um, I, I hope it made sense what I talked about with starting conditions. The starting conditions are basically our, our perspective of what the situation really is. Uh, and I'm here to tell you that the situations are never, almost never, <laughs> maybe never, uh, binary. They're, they're not good or bad, black or white, uh, you know, good or evil. Um, they are multidimensional. They're not all of the situations that we face, all the challenges that we face, all the problems that we face are multidimensional problems. They're interconnected. They're interdependent. They depend on so many things. And what we try and do, and I think what Michael was saying with a quote from Timothy Leary is that we live in a very, very complicated world. You know, our world has suffering and terrorism and injustice and crime and and all of these terrible, terrible things, but it also has love and generosity and compassion and selflessness. And because we live in such a complicated world and it's sometimes contradictory world, we at times build frameworks with which to view the world through or filters through which to view the world through so that all of these things, all of these overwhelming things become more understandable, become more uh, palpable. Uh, we can get our arms around a situation by simplifying it. But when we do that, we, we make cubby holes in, in, in the framework of our, of our filters, of our, of our uh, simplified framework with which we use to view the world. And these cubby holes, in these cubby holes, we place people and organizations and situations and nations and religions and all kinds of, every kind of label that you, that you want to put on something into these cubby holes. Um, and we ourselves identify with some of these labels that people put on it, put on us or that we put on ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with identifying with a specific group, with a, a specific nation, with a specific organization. But when we allow that to define who we really are, when we allow that to dictate who we will work with, who we will speak with, who's uh, suggestions for solutions we'll allow onto the table, that is counterproductive. Um, and when we filter it down and simplify it to such a point where it becomes inaccurate, um, then that leads to distortions. Um, so let me, uh, let me uh, pop up a couple of other comments here because we got a lot coming in and thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, there's some suggestions from Michael on uh, websites to check out. Um, all right, I have a million dollar question here from Luke. How do you remove yourself from the matrix when you don't even know you're in it? Okay, let me pop that up there. How do you remove yourself from the matrix when you don't even know that you're in it? Uh, so <laughs> that, is the million, that is the million dollar question, but I'm telling you that you're in it. <laughs> we are in it. And, and what, what that means, what I mean by that is that my perception of reality is not complete and it's not even that accurate. I have to realize that I have all of these filters. I'm, you know, this has been multiplied and expanded and amplified tremendously over the last decade through things like social media and the internet, where algorithms are feeding us exactly what uh, the algorithm thinks we want to hear. Uh, there's tremendous uh, commercial benefit to the owners of those algorithms to do that. And so when you see somebody on the internet who posts something so against what you believe 
and you can't imagine, and you thought you knew this person and you can't believe that they would post something like that, you need to realize that they're what they're being fed, what they're being spoon fed from the matrix, if you want to call it that, what they're being spoon fed is different than what you're being spoon fed. But guess what? We're all being spoon fed stuff. So I think the first step to to realizing that you're in the matrix, <laughs> and I don't mean that from a like a sci-fi point of view. All I'm saying is that that what our perceived reality is, is, is never complete and it's never completely accurate. So there's always going to be blind spots in our, in our perception of reality and that, but together as, as, as a group, as a species, we can come together and we can fill in the, the gaps. We can fill in the gaps of each of our understandings collectively by coming together, by setting aside our differences, by realizing that we all have different starting conditions, realizing that we all have slight, hopefully slight, only slightly different perspectives, and to see that and to treat that as, as a strength uh, and to look for that and to look for those things. How you unplug from the matrix is by uh, realizing that when you're being controlled and you know, whenever you're on the internet or, or whenever you're being presented with information and you feel yourself getting all riled up, you feel your, clis, your, your fists starting to clench and your heart rate starting to rise and your breath starting, to, you're probably being manipulated. There's probably, you know, some bit of information that is triggering you because the, the algorithms on the internet uh, realize that because that leads to action, that leads you to share things, that it leads it to go viral. It, it's It's all part of uh, you know, a commercially driven, in some cases, politically driven um, uh, objective to to further whatever causes there are. So just, I think the first step to being unplugged is to realize that you're being manipulated and to not be manipulated when you realize it. Um, let's see. Let me pop up one from uh, Taylor. You, sp you speak truth. Our perspectives of reality are not truth. So how do we begin from the basics? We are human. We require breathing, eating, sleeping. Can we start with the basic needs for survival for each individual human? It's doable. That's a, that's a great point. Um, and I think one of the, one of the, um, the great tools uh, in being able to align our starting conditions, I think a good example is the International Space Station program itself. And what we did in the International Space Station program is we came together as a group of 15 nations. We set aside our differences and we chose to do something amazing uh, and do it in space. And what we did is we is we focused on the low hanging fruit. And that is the things that we agree on. So back in the early 90s, um, there was a lot of discussion on whether or not uh, the Russians should be allowed to participate in the um, in the space station program, which eventually became the International Space Station program. And there were a lot of uh, dissenting opinions in the US and, and actually uh, not just in the US, but uh, amongst the other partners as well, that the Russians are doing X, Y, and Z. And until I stop doing X, Y, and Z, we have no business to work with them. Um, but what, what did happen was those voices didn't win out. We did bring the Russians into the space station um, partnership. Uh, personal relationships developed through that, a certain level of trust developed through that. And that built up a, this, a very, very strong partnership where, you know, there's not the U.S. crew and the Russian crew and the Japanese crew and the European crew on the International Space Station. There's just the crew. So we operate on the crew of the International Space Station as one single international unified crew to do things like maintain and protect the life support systems of our spacecraft, of our, of our space station. And so we need, following that example, we need to operate as one international unified uh, crew here on the surface of Spaceship Earth to maintain and protect the life support systems of Spaceship Earth and to do all those other things. But in this particular case, we chose to, to Focus on awe and wonder, to use awe and wonder, the awe and wonder of space exploration, the awe and wonder of constructing an incredible space station in orbit. We chose to use that as a motivator for our actions. And awe and wonder is a very, very strong motivator. But another strong motivator is fear. And so all those dissenting voices that were saying we shouldn't be doing anything until X, Y, and Z happens, those people were all motivated from a foundation of fear. And fear is also a very powerful motivator, but I, I believe that it only works 
uh, in the short term. Uh, I don't think it's an effective uh, motivator of long-term uh, progressive action. Uh, I think On Wonder, on the other hand, is. But what we tend to do, is, as opposed to using On Wonder to find the things that we agree on and use those things uh, as a platform to, if we so choose, address the things that we don't agree on. Like we have this platform with the International Space Station Partnership where if we so choose, we can use that as a platform to jump off and now start to address the things that we don't agree on. But we tend to do the exact opposite. We tend to, to focus on fear. We tend to use the things that we agree on as a stick to force the things that we don't agree on. And that uh, that just, just never, never works. And so I think part of this is to realize how much we do have in common. And when we dolly zoom out, and, I, and for, for those of you new to the floating darkness episodes, uh, dolly zoom is a, is a term uh, that we use throughout, throughout our, our episodes, and it's, it's a term that I use throughout the book, which means zooming out to the biggest picture possible while keeping the worm's eye details on the ground, zooming out to the long term while keeping the short term in focus, and looking at things from multiple perspectives. Um, so when we dolly zoom out uh, to, to the orbital perspective, we realize that we we have more in common than we than we have thought of as our differences. All of our perceived differences kind of fade into insignificance when we zoom out to that. And what's left is what what Taylor was talking about is the basic need for survival. That everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants uh, you, you know to live a, a life you know a good life with and have their families and their loved ones have a good life. I think we all want that. But a lot of that comes from the a mindset. A lot of the 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 problems arise when we take that basic desire, which we all have, and we filter it through a scarcity mindset, which means I need to get, if, if, if you have too much, then I don't have enough. So, so it's, it, we can't all rise up together. It has to be at the expense of somebody else. Uh, and in, I'm going to show another video um, because as I said in the closing of the last video is that the very ingenuity and cooperative nature of humanity should give us should give us hope that we can build this future that we all want to be a part of this future where every all needs are met and and where people can live in harmony with each other and the planet and so in this in this next video which i'm going to play now um it, it is just to set the stage is is i go to my favorite thinking spot on the iss which is the cupola and I think about this visionary future. I think about how do we get there? And um, this is going to be a very metaphorical video. It uses um, a metaphor of a, of, a, of a rocket launch to illustrate um, the, the steps necessary to, to lead us towards that future that we'd all want to be a part of. And so I'll play that now. As I seek refuge in my favorite thinking spot on the ISS, the cupola, the path to this visionary and restorative future becomes clear to me. Humanity must metaphorically launch itself into orbit. To do this, we must capitalize on the opportunity that the evolutionary phase shift sparked by the Apollo 8 inflection point gave us. We, as a planetary society, have been given the opportunity to ascend to incomprehensible heights, literally and figuratively. Floating effortlessly in the cupola, gazing at the snow-capped majestic mountains of the Himalayan plateau drifting slowly and silently below me, I imagine a rocket. On the top of it sits an unconscious superorganism representing all of humanity and every living thing that inhabits Earth. This precious cargo represents not only everything that presently lives, but everything that will ever live. As the rocket's first stage fires, tremendous brute force lifts it from the launch pad and starts the acceleration upward. Eons of competition and conquest push it further. Dynasties and dictatorships align and organize human effort on a massive scale. In response, tremendous suffering is expelled from the rocket's exhaust nozzle. Greed and conflict serve as catalysts, sparking tremendous technological acceleration. The collective insanity of the First World War produces radios and airplanes. The Second World War produces nuclear power. 
The space race and Cold War produce satellite communications, personal computers, and solar power. Blind independence and unconstrained growth consume enormous amounts of natural fuel as the rocket approaches staging. The noise is deafening. The vibration is violent and unpredictable. As it continues to climb, the rocket approaches the inflection point between the first and second stages. As the first stage of the rocket burns out, the lone passenger, the superorganism representing all living things, awakens and is faced with a choice. Jettison the weight of the first stage and fire the second stage engine. Or hold on to the first stage and fall back to Earth in a fiery crash. The superorganism, having just awakened, is confused. It knows that the first stage brought it to this point and is reluctant to jettison it. It does not yet realize that it can't make it to orbit carrying the extra weight of the first stage. But even now, a spark of awareness rises within it. Just as the rocket is about to start tumbling back toward Earth, the superorganism realizes the futility of hanging on to the first stage and finally lets go. Instantly, the second stage engine fires and the rocket is exponentially thrusted upward and onward, leaving the noise and vibration behind. But the awakening superorganism realizes that no one is steering the ship. Quickly, it establishes the processes to steer the rocket on its ascent. The superorganism bases its decisions on the most accurate data possible, enabling the most accurate predictions of its effect on the trajectory of the rocket. The decisions it makes are in the context of the entire superbody, considering the big picture implications, not just in reaction to its loudest parts. The superorganism determines the impact of a decision beyond the immediate area of concern and determines if harm would be caused elsewhere. Decisions cease to be driven solely by party lines or other parochial or tribal factors. The greater good becomes the driving force of a decision, not party or national loyalty. Those motivations were jettisoned with the first stage after they were recognized by the superorganism as fundamentally misguided and destructive in the long run. All actions taken consider the long-term multi-generational effects on all. When considering a course of action, the resultant trajectory is projected out to the decision-maker's great-grandchildren. Only those actions leading to a positive and restorative world for our great-grandchildren are taken. No longer do we sacrifice our progeny for our own present short-term benefit. During this second stage acceleration, course corrections are made with open and transparent inputs and courses of action. All proposed solutions permit everyone to see how the sausage is being made and can survive having a spotlight put on them. No longer do decisions require secrecy to be successful. As the rocket continues its acceleration to orbit, a planetary consciousness arises within the superorganism. This consciousness can be thought of as an embedded system. At the core is social consciousness, where we truly understand the meaning of one human family, where the false notion of separation is finally overturned and we embrace the basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. Encompassing this social consciousness, like the rocket fairing cocooning our spacecraft, is the awareness of our interdependent place within Earth's biosphere. Together, these two nested systems are the emerging planetary consciousness. With all of this in place, the superorganism can now steer the rocket to orbit. What is orbit? It is where we no longer need our engines. It is where we have accelerated to the speed where, with no additional effort, we can remain at our present altitude. Or, if we so choose, we can continue our ascension farther out into the universe. Orbit is where we enter into abundance. It is the long-awaited post-scarcity existence where goods can be produced in great abundance with minimal to no human labor required. Our metaphorical orbit is a place where everyone has what they need, and it is where everyone can choose for themselves how they will contribute to society. Imagine what the world could look like in the next 50 years if the superorganism that represents all life on Earth 
which has as its brain the embedded superorganism known as humanity, were awakened and jettisoned all those things that are no longer needed. What would happen if our true starting condition were realized and we were able to make a course correction to steer our trajectory toward an unlimited future? Yes, imagine what the world could look like in the next 50 years if we jettisoned all those things that no longer serve us, that no longer need, that all those things that are weighing us down, that are keeping us back, that are preventing us from moving forward. Um, I think, thanks for all the comments that are coming in. Um, and I think here's one from Karen that's uh, very pertinent. If people can learn to let go of the past, we can move forward as a single human race. And so part of what I was saying in, in Floating in Darkness about jettisoning is, yeah, jettisoning, part of what we're jettisoning is our past. It's the baggage. If, if we want to look at it from an individual point of view uh, and progressing forward as an individual uh, and, and achieving your, your potential and achieving your dreams, uh, part of that is to jettison all those things that are holding you back. And uh, a lot of us, uh, myself included, carry baggage from our past. Uh, for some reason, we carry it around with us constantly. And so uh, part of what we need to jettison is um, all that baggage, all that stuff that no longer serves us. We have no control over the past. We have no no, no point of connection with the past. Um, the only point of connection we have with life is what's happening right now at this very, very moment. Um, and I thank you all that at this very moment, we're all together uh, on this on this episode. And again, I want to uh, encourage everybody to jump in to this conversation. But I know that video was uh, jam packed with a lot of um, a lot of suggestions on what that means. Uh, to jettison those things that no longer serve us, to stage our, our rocket, to be able to reach orbit. And, you know, the, the video started out with me talking about how blind independence and unconstrained growth consumed enormous amounts of natural fuel. And so one of the things, and this goes kind of along with what Karen said, is, you know, what we, we can't curse what brought us here. We can't, we can't talk about all those horrible things that happened uh, and, and and dismiss them because because and and there's another quote here from from Luke. Let me um, let me call that up too because I think this is this is pertinent too. So uh, Luke says, but sometimes what we think is a curse turns out to be a blessing, and that becomes uh, the gra gravitational tectonic jolt we need to realign ourselves, and so. We need to look back at our past. We don't ignore our past, but we look back on our past and we pull those things out of it that are beneficial. So, yes, all of those things, all those terrible things uh, had terrible consequences, but it also led to those positive things, too. Um, that, that doesn't excuse those things. It just means that uh, we can't curse what brought us here. What's important is what we do right now with where we're at right now, jettisoning those things that no longer serve us. Um, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. talked about uh, in his Christmas sermon on peace, which is where the words, the, ba the basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality comes from. And that was on uh, Christmas Eve, 1967. He also talked about the obsolescence of war and how modern weapons have made it so that it can't even serve as a lesser good anymore. That because of the capabilities of us to, to destroy the entire planet. Uh, because of the of the weapon the weaponry that we um, that we have created, and so w we talked about uh, in that video about uh, using the most accurate data necessary, and um, so let me let me pop up a quote from from Ron Rosano if I could find it. Um, so he says, "Fabulous to emphasize the importance of assumptions and how easy it is to overlook things that." Uh, you can be locked into and can benefit greatly from always being open to things being different from how you understand them to be. And so in that video, we talked about how we it, there is strength in having all these different perceived uh, perspectives or perceived realities of a situation, as long as all of those different perspectives of our, are all built on accurate data. And so it's it's when we introduce inaccurate data is when the distortions in those in those uh, perceptions lead to counterproductive uh, actions. Um, 
all decisions are made in the context of the entire superbody. So in other words, uh, we can't, we can no longer have things that benefit a handful of people at the expense of everybody else. And so, because that is con uh, counterproductive, that is part of the, that's part of the old way of doing things of, of things that we need to jettison. I also talked about how uh, party and national loyalty uh, is no longer the, the driving force uh, for making decisions. Those motivations were jettisoned uh, with the first stage when they were deemed by the superorganism as being counterproductive. I want to make sure that you understand that what I, I'm not saying that, you know, we need to do away with nation states or anything like that. What I am saying is that when we are patriotic, when we look at our national identity, and there's nothing wrong with having a national identity, when we look at it in the context of the bigger picture, in the context of a family of nations, that makes us, that makes us stronger as a whole. And, you know, thinking in terms of having a planetary consciousness, like I said in the video, doesn't make us any less American or German or Rwandan or, or whatever. It, it just means that we're seeing how each of those different national identities or any identity, cultural identities, religious identities, fit into the fabric of, of our, our family of nations, our family, uh, our, our term of one, our concept of one human family. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to just, uh, make a paid political, not a paid, paid commercial announcement now. Uh, but, it's because it's it's out of thanks. It's out of gratitude for all of you for being on this journey with me. But we can um, um, we have this offer right here for if you go to floatingindarkness.com, uh, there is a pre-order tab there. Using the code future, not only will you get twenty five percent off uh, the pre-order co cost of the book, we will we will also give a free ebook download for that. So um, I'm really I really want everybody. I, I really want to hear everybody's opinion on the messages of the book. Uh, and so I, I hope that you guys are able to, to, to read it. I really want this uh, to be a uh, more than just a one-way communication. I want this to, to spark uh, ideas, to spark um, different solutions to, to the problems that we're facing. Um, and I'm just looking for some more comments from, from everybody. Um, let me pop one up from um, oh, more comments. Hold on. All right. So this is from Taylor. Uh, like we said about fear being short term when many humans live in fear of the next meal, safety, access to medical care. It does not allow space for higher thinking. So I agree 100 percent. And one of the other points here is that, you know, we have billions of people around the world that don't have access to clean water, that don't that go to bed hungry every night. We have many, many people who die from preventable and curable diseases. Uh, there's all of these horrible things and that are on this planet. It is within our capability, it is within our power to fix those things. And what we tend to do right now is we tend to uh, do whatever it takes to rid ourselves of our conscious, you know, our guilt. Uh, and that might be, you know, writing a check to a, a charity that, that does some work or, or, or does this or that. But I think the mindset in all of that is, oh, those poor people over there, let me write a check to this charity. And then, you know, um, maybe that'll, maybe that'll help. Where I think one of the inaccuracies in that data is thinking, oh, those poor people over there. It's not those poor people over there. That's us. That's our one human family. And until we live in a world where there aren't people that have to worry about their next meal, um, we're all going to be held back. So it's not, it doesn't only help those people who would be directly, you know, affected by a, a you know a ch a check to a charity. It affects all of us. Um, you know, a good example is the internet. You know, right now I think there's 3 billion people in the world that are not connected to the internet. And so connecting those folks to the internet who presently don't have access um, will help them greatly. You know, it, 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 you could have education online, you could start businesses. There's all kinds of ways that providing the internet to people um, will help lift them out of poverty. Uh, but what it also does is it connects those 3 billion minds those 3 billion problem-solving, creative, intuitive minds to the global conversation. And I've said this many times, 
when we do that, when we connect all, all, the, all those people who presently aren't connected to the internet, when they are connected to the internet, we're going to find solutions we never dreamed of coming from people from places we've never heard of. And I, again, it's a good example of how that, that lifts us all up. And so we're all, I shouldn't say we're all, that many people uh, are living their lives, are looking at news events, are looking at social media feeds, are looking at world events through the lens of scarcity that we have, you know, limited resources. And so if you have more than I have less, but we're, we're rapidly getting to the point where that is a fallacy. That is an inaccurate starting condition. That is, a, that, that is inaccurate data being fed into our perceived notion. Because for instance, right now there, we, we produce enough food every year to feed every living person on the planet. Uh, we just waste so much that that doesn't happen. So, you know, we can right now feed everyone on the planet by incorporating methods to reduce food waste. for instance. Just one simple example of, of how this idea of a, a scarcity mindset is hurting us. Um, any more comments out there? Julie lo loves the comment of a family of nations. That's exactly what it is. Um, Tara Lee talks about um, mindfulness and, and being fully present. And I think that's a really uh, key point because if we are overly focused on the past or overly focused on our fears of what could happen in the future, then we are going to be impeded in what we can do right now. And we're going to be impeded in, in uh, the progress that we can make. Um, so I wanted to, to circle back to where we started this episode. And that is uh, with this quote from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, which said, we cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from which change can begin. And so uh, I just want to bring this episode to, to a close by talking about, by really diving into, into that quote, uh, because I think it's so important because there is a there is a tremendous amount of denial of what exists, uh, and that goes in every direction and in every form. Um, some of it's what we already talked about. It's the simplification of of how the over you know the complex interconnected interdependent world that we live in to try and make it something more understandable and and easier to to deal with. Uh, that's certainly uh, part of of it. That's certainly a denial of what exists because we're filtering out keep parts of information, um, consciously or unconsciously. Um, there are people and organizations that are doing this purposely because they have uh, commercial goals or political goals. And so they are purposely trying to distort the messages that, that, are, that are going out. And so my challenge to everybody who's listening um, is to be really hyper aware, hypersensitive uh, to all these things and to, and, you know, we've had a, a number of both on the, 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 uh, on these episodes and on the orbital perspective podcast, we've had a lot of discussions uh, on discerning the truth and fact checking and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, the, the, the common, the common thought is it's fatiguing. It's like, how could you possibly, you know, fact check every bit of information that, that comes through. And, and you can't, it's impossible. Um, but I think where we cross the line is when we ourselves put out into the world information that has not been fact checked. Either we post something or we share something from somebody where, um, be, because, you know, <laughs> we, we got that emotional uh, charge, right? We, we felt the, the blood pressure going up and the, and the breathing and the, the fist cl clenching and we got all excited and we blindly just shared something uh, because it got us so emotionally charged. Uh, we talked about you can't solve, be a part of the solution of the problem if you're part of the problem. When you do that, you're part of the problem. And so uh, I think the first time I think it was, um, or oh, I forget whose comment it was, but basically talking about just that, that you know, how do you, how do you unplug from the matrix? How do you get outside of the problem? And I think things like that are, are ways that we can do that. And so um, let's see. Um, I'm going to pop up one last comment and then we're going to bring this one to a close. This is from Luana. Uh, the idea of patriotism has been soiled for many of us, but I still hold fast the identity of a planetary citizen 
That is how I channel my grief for what has happened to the environment and the indigenous people. And so this is a really, really good point because you can be both an American and a planetary citizen. You could be both an American citizen and a planetary citizen. They are not mutually exclusive. Or you could be a Canadian citizen or, or an Irish citizen or whatever nation you want to pick. You can be that citizen and you can be a planetary citizen too. They are not mutually exclusive. And so um, in a previous episode, I talked, which was all about home, I talked about landing back on earth and thinking that I was home and then realizing that I was in Kazakhstan. And I, I also uh, stress the point that considering home the entire planet does not come with a requirement to forget where we came from, our national, our, our cultural, our religious identity. Again, it simply means seeing those things in the context of the bigger picture. And so um, with that, I want to encourage everybody two weeks from now, or, or May 4th, however many weeks that is, May 4th is our last episode. It's really, really going to be a great episode. Uh, it's on our underlying unity, uh, and I'm really, really excited uh, about it. Um, it, it. It is also uh, somewhat metaphorical, uh, like this one was, but um, uh, May 4th, same time, uh, same same places, and uh, I think... Uh, I th I'm looking forward to seeing everybody back there. Again, as we close, I just want to remind everybody, uh, if you're interested in picking up a copy, a pre-order copy of uh, Floating in Darkness, save 25% by using the future uh, promo code. Uh, and also, uh, if you do that uh, um, in the next 72 hours, we'll also throw in an, an ebook, uh, a free ebook download. Um, and so uh, as, a, as a special thanks for being along on this journey. And... Again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for all your comments. Keep them coming in. I'll, I'll uh, continue to look uh, on, on YouTube and on Facebook at the comments as they come in. Uh, great comments. Uh, it's it's um, and and help spread the the news because um, we we don't want to just be preaching to the choir because because obviously from the comments it's obvious that you all uh, understand what's at stake. Uh, you understand the path that we need to get on. Yeah, and you understand our, our current starting conditions. So um, with that, I want to thank everybody and uh, see you see on May 4th. Take care, everybody.